I'm Rebecca Lauderdale. I'm an internal medicine doctor in the Deep South, and I'm on a mission to make this statement true. Women physicians flourish. During my experience of burnout years ago, when not many people were paying attention to physician burnout, I eventually found my way and learned to flourish. I created this podcast to bring you the things that helped me most. The science, the stories, the people, and the evidence-based practices that will help you if you're struggling. Because the world needs doctors like you to not just be free of burnout, but to flourish. Hello there. Thank you so much for joining me for my very first Women Physicians Flourish podcast episode. Whoever you are, you are welcome here, and I hope you find something that's truly of value to you. But before I get started, um, just a quick disclaimer. I am a medical doctor, but I'm not your doctor. So though I may discuss medical and mental health interventions, you should always talk to your own doctor before starting or stopping any form of treatment. This program is not intended to be and should not be construed as medical advice, and the information is not a substitute for seeking professional medical expertise or treatment. The opinions and views expressed in this program are my own and do not represent the opinions of my employer or any hospital, medical clinic, or other institution. I'm going to start by telling you a bit about myself so that you know who I am and why I'm here. Um, I'm a primary care internal medicine doctor in the deep south of the United States. I've been practicing for a decade and a half, and I'm producing this podcast to create some more conversation around the topic of flourishing for physicians particularly women physicians, and that's primarily because I am a woman, and there are some particular issues for women that were important to me. Um, As I recovered from burnout um, that was really severe about eight years ago, and I'm now living a completely different life than I imagined was possible for me um, than when I was at my lowest point. There are thankfully a growing number of voices in this space, which I'm so grateful for, Um, so much more than there was back in 2013 when I was suffering a great deal and didn't really have anyone to mentor me through the process. I cobbled together my own curriculum for healing burnout. Um, I got to zero on the wellness scale. That's what Martin Seligman, the psychologist who studies human flourishing, calls it. And then got really interested in finding a way to get above zero, to flourish, which is a different set of skills. This hard-won curriculum I developed for myself, which includes lots of real science and stories and friendship and courage and vulnerability, that's the topic of this podcast. The title, Women Physicians Flourish, has a period at the end because it's a sentence, a declarative It may be aspirational, but it's the purpose of this podcast to help that statement be true. One of the things that has spurred me on to create this podcast is that during the pandemic, while living physically in a smaller radius, I've expanded my virtual world to include a whole international community of physicians who are doing amazing things in their lives and for other physicians and their families and their patients. Um, 
people like Peter Kim with Passive Income MD and his Leverage and Growth Summit, which is where I found Dr. Una with Entra MD and her business school, and Sunny Smith with her amazing Empowering Women Physicians coaching program. There are literally thousands of physicians in groups <laughs> who are working on the problems of burnout and finding ways to flourish instead. And I'm, I'm so grateful to them and the other physicians who have graciously shared their time and their skills and knowledge and friendship. I wouldn't be recording this podcast right now otherwise. So I, I stated a focus on women physicians, not with the intention to exclude anyone. If you are not a physician or you don't identify as a woman, I welcome you with open arms. If this is interesting and valuable to you, then that makes me really happy. Um, but for me, as a woman and a physician, having gone through that long period of severe burnout seven or eight years ago that included depression and suicidal ideation, um, I know that through the process of healing from that, many of the factors that predisposed me to that experience were related to the fact that I'm a woman. And living with the conditioning and the gender norms and expectations of women in America. And there are things that happen when you struggle to abide by gender norms. They don't serve you in many cases. And when you try to change them, some strange things happen. Shame and guilt and fear and backlash from other people. Those things made it harder for me to make changes that eventually led to much more freedom in my life. I do first want to make it clear up front that the last thing I will be doing is victim blaming here. Um, I am well aware that it is the organizations and systems we work within that are the largest causes of physician burnout, and it's not our fault. Um, the estimate from published studies is that around 80% of the factors contributing to burnout in physicians are related to the local systems, larger organizational factors, and regulatory requirements, not any personal characteristics of ours. So if you're experiencing burnout, you're not broken. It's the system you work within. But despite this, in my particular case, and I suspect this may be true for some of you as well, <clears throat> I needed some pretty significant personal transformation before I was even able to consider changing my work environment. Um, it was only after getting some of this transformation underway that I was ready to make the career change that I did. And I still have plenty of struggles and make lots of mistakes, but despite that, I have a very rewarding life that is worlds different than it was seven years ago. So... Though the system we work in is definitely the major root cause of the high rate of burnout in physicians, many of us have internal work we need to do before we have the recognition of the depth of the problem in our lives and also the strength and the skills to change those things and ultimately to change the culture of medicine in America. That's a dream that many of us share, and I certainly have a vision for. It's something all of us need, not just women and not just physicians. All of us benefit when the providers of health care are well and flourishing. And that's not just a positive sentiment that feels warm and fuzzy. Uh, when doctors flourish, they stay in their jobs longer. They're more productive. They have better patient outcomes, fewer mistakes, 
less substance abuse, less divorce. Patients are happier. It spills over to the whole world. There's been a lot of suffering in our profession, but there's also the potential for immense transformation here. So much potential, and I want us to be ready to be part of that. I can sense a tide turning through these years since I had my big breakdown, epiphany, transformation, whatever you want to call it. There were very few people talking about physician burnout then, much less the causes and the evidence for relieving it, and certainly not about physicians actually flourishing. But now we know so much more, and there's so much more awareness. It's an incredible opportunity and responsibility to be part of this profession at this time in history, and I just can't wait to do this with you and play my little part in it. So that's the reason for this podcast, to share with you information and skills that are evidence-based, not just some N equals one bunch of anecdotes that leave you wondering why you should even listen to me. Um, you have my commitment that I will bring you things that have real evidence behind them. So today, the, the first major point that I want to evangelize and that this episode is really about is the topic of self-love. Taking time and energy, investing resources on learning to care for yourself is not selfish. It's actually an imperative. I remember thinking how I felt like I was wasting time if I spent time and energy on self-compassion or self-care beyond things that were really just ways of conforming to kind of beauty and behavior standards, things that um, I felt like determined my worth in society's eyes. But I had hesitation on spending meaningful time or resources on really loving myself, whatever that meant for me. I was incredibly stubborn about this. I spent the better part of my adult life on self-improvement projects, trying to perfect myself in various ways and basically covering up the fact that I wasn't happy. My relationships weren't what I wanted them to be. My work didn't feel fulfilling like I expected it to be. I had no outlets for creative expression, and yet somehow I thought the best thing to do was to just keep taking on these projects to make myself better, in air quotes. Things like losing weight, um, cosmetics, wardrobe, projects for other people, um, projects at work that were really more about me meeting others' expectations and less about what made me happy. Um, and I would never be happy with the results. They were never enough. I had been on a diet almost continuously since I was a teenager. And when I look back or I see photos of myself, I just, I feel sad that I couldn't see that I was totally normal and beautiful and just really wish I had been able to feel happy and be okay with who I was and love the people I was with. One of the other things I would do would get was uh, getting preoccupied with with feeling like I was a bad parent. There was that kind of double bind of I feel like I'm a bad doctor because I have a family to take care of and I feel like I'm a bad parent because I'm a doctor. Um, 
I would go and immerse myself in some new parenting method, and then I couldn't do it perfectly, and so I would just feel terrible. Because what I was looking for was for my worth to come from perfection, which doesn't exist. Uh, it wouldn't matter what I did or whatever method I used, the result was the same, because that's what perfection does to you. And because I couldn't be perfect, I would just I would start eating more to buffer from the negative feelings and I'd gain weight and I'd go on a diet again. And there would just be this cycle that just went over and over again. Um, and I was completely oblivious to the truth, the, the deeper issue that I didn't feel like I was worthy of the happiness and the fulfillment that I really wanted. But this was below my level of conscious thought it was probably obvious to others, but, um, it took experiencing a great deal of existential pain to accept that I needed to do work on self-love and acceptance and eliminating perfectionism. I felt really averse to that term, self-love, in the beginning. It just conjured up images of people who are self-involved or totally disconnected from reality. I thought it was a cop-out term for people who wanted to justify self-indulgence. But I couldn't have been more wrong. I remember the specific setting I was in when the first of the dominoes fell for me. I'd been on yet another diet program and was frustrated by my lack of success. Um, I found a book called Immunity to Change. It was written by two Harvard psychologists who developed kind of a system to work through to help individuals and organizations to identify the kind of invisible reasons that their change efforts aren't successful. It's a really great book. I highly recommend it. But when I was working through the exercises in the book, trying to figure out why I was having so much trouble eating healthy and not losing my excess weight, it just kept coming up that the reasons I wasn't successful had nothing to do with knowledge or skill. It had to do with the fact that I quite literally hated myself. I was never happy with my appearance or how I'd fit into the world, no matter what I weighed. And the truth was, most of the time, it was in a healthy range. I thought I was a terrible parent, like I said earlier, terrible doctor, terrible wife. Didn't have the relationships, the friendships that I wanted because I thought I had to be perfect to be able to have those. But it, that never really rose to conscious thought until I started working through this. So as I became consciously aware of how much I really disliked myself, there was a little voice in my head that quietly suggested that maybe the topic I needed to work on wasn't my weight or my appearance. I was resistant, but I did browse the Immunity to Change author's resource page, and it had a listing of books on all sorts of topics that people might target for their change efforts. And one of the topic headings was self-acceptance. And it, it just rang true to this little part of me that that's what I needed. I didn't want to need that. But that little voice just suggested again that maybe it wouldn't hurt to just see what this was about. The first item on the resource, the resource page listing under self-acceptance was Brene Brown's book, The Gifts of Imperfection. And they listed her TED Talk, too. So I read the description of her book on Amazon, and then I watched her first TED Talk, and I was struck speechless. 
for those of you who don't know her work or this part of her work, Dr. Brene Brown is a social scientist. She's a PhD in social work at the University of Houston. She started her career researching shame, what shame is, what causes it, and how it affects the behavior of humans. So as, she, as her body of research grew, she noticed there was this small cohort in her studies, and all of them, small percentage, but they were always there, people who she called wholehearted. They lived their lives with an openness and a willingness to put themselves out there and be authentic, to take risks, and to really love and live really in a big way that was so different from the vast majority of people that she studied. It allowed creativity and innovation in a way that other people just weren't able to attain. So she became intrigued and decided to study those people. What's different about them? What do they do? What do they not do? What's different about their life experience, their childhoods, their education? Anything that could maybe give a playbook of how to be a wholehearted person. In her book, The Gifts of Imperfection, she writes about the moment that she was analyzing her data that she realized what it was that was different about the wholehearted people. They didn't have different rates of experiencing trauma or different socioeconomic status. There wasn't really a, a difference in their education or race or ethnicity or things like that. It wasn't a special kind of a childhood or social status. Though she does say that about 10% of them seem to have been taught how to be this way in their families of origin. But the vast majority were not, and they learned it by themselves. They, they fought for it. So here's a direct quote from The Gifts of Imperfection. I thought I'd find that wholehearted people were just like me and doing all of the same things I was doing working hard, following the rules, doing it until I got it right, always trying to know myself better, raising my kids exactly by the books. After studying tough topics like shame for a decade, I truly believed that I deserved confirmation that I was living right. But here's the tough lesson that I learned that day and every day since. How much we know and understand ourselves is critically important but there's something that's even more essential to living a wholehearted life, loving ourselves. And perhaps the most painful lesson of that day hit me so hard that it took my breath away. It was clear from the data that we cannot give our children what we don't have. Where we are on our journey of living and loving with our whole hearts is a much stronger indicator of parenting success than anything we can learn from how-to books. End quote. She then goes on to talk about the fact that analyzing that data and making those findings led to a huge spiritual transformation for her because she realized that she was living almost exactly the opposite way from the wholehearted people. She had very little self-love in her life and ended up spending a year with a therapist working through all of it before she even started to write up her findings and share what she had found with others. But that finding has led to a tremendous amount of notoriety for her because they were so, these findings were so unexpected, yet at the same time, so obvious. 
So another quote from her, as it turned out, the work I had to do was messy and deep. I slogged through it until one day, exhausted and with mud still wet and dripping off my traveling shoes, I realized, oh my God, I feel different. I feel joyful and real. I'm still afraid, but I also feel really brave. Something's changed. I can feel it in my bones. I was healthier, more joyful, and more grateful than I had ever felt. I felt calmer and grounded and significantly less anxious. I had rekindled my creative life, reconnected with my family and friends in a new way, and most important, felt truly comfortable in my own skin for the first time in my life. End quote. I can personally attest that this is a reproducible result <laughs> a year or two in, and I felt exactly the same way. When I first read her work, I was speechless, and then I just said, oh no, like a million times to myself, because I realized, like she had, that I was living the total opposite way of wholeheartedness, and then it was going to be hard to get to that. But her story and the stories of others along the way convinced me that it was worth it. Wholeheartedness was what I wanted deep down in my soul, and I always had been. So I set about developing my own curriculum for getting better. I cobbled together from dozens, probably hundreds of sources in the years since I found her work in 2014, and it has changed my life. One of the reasons that Dr. Brown's work spoke so clearly to me and convinced me to get started was that she had evidence, not just anecdotes. This was actual data, and that's what I want to bring to you through this podcast. Today, again, the point I'm hoping to drive home is that your ability to love and care for yourself determines the ability you have to love and care for anyone else in your life and is directly related to your ability to live authentically, to innovate, to create, to live the life that you want, to flourish. And that's actually in the evidence. And it's not just Dr. Brown's evidence. You can find this in multiple disciplines, psychiatry and psychology, even evolutionary biology. Our survival as happy, whole, flourishing beings, and not just people who are barely surviving, is predicated on the fact that we participate in our own well-being. Natural selection did not give us permanent happiness. <laughs> it gave us survival, but it did have a hand in determining the things that contribute to us flourishing, as have group selection and cultural evolution on different scales. And I'll talk about that in later podcasts because it is fascinating and it's helpful in understanding and then implementing that knowledge for change. Many of the things that lead us to flourish are done in relationships with other people, one-on-one -on -one or in groups of various sizes. So knowing about these things can help make the way forward clearer and our neocortex will help us if we use it to that end. This is who we are as humans. For now, I hope I've been able to convince you, and if not convince, maybe at least put a little crack in the shell, tip the domino, that if you're like I was back in 2014, trying to figure out why I was so unhappy, that you owe yourself some time and some resources to learn how to practice self-love and self-acceptance. 
I hope that you're closer to your own transformation than you were before listening to this podcast today. Thank you so much for your ear and your attention. If you like this episode, it means a whole lot to the success of this podcast if you'll share it with others um, and give a rating on the podcast app that you use. Um, those will give the podcast more visibility so that I can keep doing this and help more people. If you want to stay in touch and hear about other things I'm up to, you can go to www.rebeccalauderdalemd.com. That's Rebecca with two C's. And sign up for my email list. In return, I will send you a couple exercises you can do that can help with your inner critic. And that'll be something we talk more about in later episodes. You can also find me on Instagram at dr.lauderdale, and my bio there has links to my website and other things that I've done. Don't forget to take a look in the show notes for links to other resources that I've mentioned in this episode. Thank you so much again. And here is a little benediction for you, written by Jan Richardson. That you will know your vision and live into it. That you will withstand the onslaught that comes. That places of necessity and places of horror will give way to wonders and possibilities. That you will see, that your seeing will change you, that your seeing will change the world. Much love, my friends. Until next time.